All right. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of The Jake Dunlap Show. We are very excited that you joined us. If you haven't tuned in, this is the show where we talk to celebrities, thought, and industry leaders to really discover their journey to success. I am super excited that you're joining us. This show is like no other. I can promise you that. You might laugh. You might cry, but you will definitely leave inspired and gain a whole new level of insight into those people that you follow, love, and admire. All right, my friends, welcome to another episode of The Jake Dunlap Show. I am very excited to have someone that I consider at this point a friend uh, on the show, someone who you may know from his smoldering pictures on Forbes, his amazing videos on LinkedIn. Uh, Perhaps you knew him when he was a state champion baseball player or was competing in surf competitions where riots broke out. But we'll get into all of that. And I want you to welcome Mr. Chris Walker. Chris, thank you so much for joining me, man. I'm I'm looking forward to this. That has that must that's gotta be the best intro that I've ever received. So I'm very grateful for that and looking forward to getting onto the show. Let's do this. <laughs> well, you you knew it, you knew I was gonna come correct, man. You knew I wasn't gonna <laughs> this wasn't gonna be, you know, a layup. So 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 again, you know, if, if you've listened to other episodes, what we try to do is we really just break down the the history of, of people and we find that in talking about people's journey. You know, we can learn from each other. We can grow from experiences and shared experiences that we've had. And so we're, we're going to start back in the day. We're going to start back in Brookline, New Hampshire, right? And is that is that where you were born, was in Brookline? I, I was born in Concord, Massachusetts, but I grew up in, in New Hampshire. Okay, awesome. All right. So in Brookline in particular, is that right? Correct. All right. So what was life like growing up in Brookline? How big is Brookline? For those who don't know, uh, maybe talk a little bit about your family then. Yeah, Brookline's a really small town in New Hampshire. I think pop when I grew, was growing up there, population 7,000. Um, small town, so small that we actually had to merge middle schools and high schools to have enough of a class to even have a high, like a decent high school size. And so, um, yeah, uh, small rural town in New Hampshire, great, you know, middle class upbringing, had a, had a bicycle, had a lot of great friends, had um, some, you know, very... Uh, supportive parents and and um yeah it was a it was a it was a good place to grow up what was what were some of your memories from kind of pre-high school like what was pre pre pre-high school chris like pre-high school was was sports even even high school and college chris was sports too but um yeah i was a a big baseball and basketball player um growing up all of my uh, close friends that are, I just had dinner with them last Friday, still really close friends today. Um, all grew up in that, that crew playing, uh, playing sports together in, in elementary school and middle school. <laughs> so growing up, you're playing sports. Um, what else are you into? You know, obviously we're going to get into kind of the, the, the engineer, Chris, which I think is going to be really interesting for a lot of folks who probably don't know your, your, you know, kind of history. Mm-hmm. Uh, what other interests, you know, so sports, I think a lot of, you know, kids growing up, sports is a big one. What else, anything mm-hmm. else that really stood out to you back then? Back in the day, I was trying, I was trying to play guitar, had aspirations to potentially be a rock star. That one didn't really work out um, around the, when you're a, when you're a two sport athlete around the time that time comes, you, st- you have to start making choices, right? So I was in a band, we were trying to play a couple of shows. And then the coach of the sports teams come over to me and say, Hey, we got four games, a w- we got four baseball games a week. 
Are you going to like, you got to make a choice here. And so I kind of set down the guitar, haven't picked it up since. Uh, and, what what uh, type of music are we talking here? Um, You know, like rock, punk rock, stuff like that. That was, uh, you know, pretty, pretty uh, happening stuff when I was growing up. <laughs> and then later we'll talk about you getting into EDM as well, too. But we'll talk, <laughs> we'll get into that here in a little bit. Um, so, all right. So then you go to, you again, stay there for high school. So again, what was high school like for you? You know, what do you, what, what are some of your memories of high school? Um, you know, were you a, were you a straight A student? You know, were you, okay, you mentioned <laughs> sports, but you know, what was high school like for you? Yeah. If I had to, uh, to like simplify the high school journey, it was that I think that I've always been, um, pretty intelligent. And so I was playing, I was playing sports and doing the bare minimum to get B's in high school is pretty much like what the way that I, I reflect on it. Um, and then uh, around junior year came, maybe I'm going a little bit too fast for your agenda, but no, ju- no junior agenda, junior year came, I was uh, being recruited to play baseball at a, several different several different schools. And Dartmouth was, was one of those uh, schools based in New Hampshire that was interested in having me come play baseball for them. And I was interested in going there too. And, uh, and after seeing my, my SATs were okay, but after seeing my, my GPA, which at that time was 2.8, they, uh, they told me there was no way that they could get me into school. And that was a big turning point for me. Um, and at that point forward, both for the rest of high school and throughout college, I had a 3.9 or above, like really started to take my academics seriously. Um, and it was, uh, yeah, I think a really really important part of my life, actually, now that I think about it. <laughs> what was it? You know, like what, I mean, what was it about? I mean, obviously, look, everyone's, you know, everyone knows Dartmouth, but, you know, what was it about that, that, you know, was a catalyst for you versus, you know, a, well, that's okay. Like, I'll just go somewhere else. You know, what yeah. was it about that? I think moment? it was sort of like a wake up call for me. So in, in two, in two ways, one, like, um, starting to get to the, I was almost at the age where I was getting to the place where I realized that I wasn't going to be a professional baseball player. <laughs> like, right. It was right around that time where I was looking around and I was like, you know, I'm good, but I'm not, I'm not that good. Um, which, which then led me to think, Hey, like if that's not going to be the route that I'm going to have to figure out academics and now like schools that are, you know, top notch aspire, like I'm a top notch athlete. Why can't I get into a top notch school? And so um, that was a, a catalyst for me in both directions to think about, like, maybe we got to start looking at the bigger picture outside of sports here. Yeah. I mean, what, what do you remember a moment or like when that happened for you, where you kind of realized, like, I'm going to need to pivot, you know, again, was that Dartmouth? That, it was that, when that, they told the me. Big, yeah. That was, the yeah, for, it was a, it was a big thing. It was the, uh, uh, fall of my junior year. Um, which is a big recruiting time. And, um, and I'd been getting interest from, you know, D2s and D3s, but not a lot of D1s. Um, and then you get Dartmouth, which is not like a amazing academic or a athletic D1 sure. school for that sport, but is an inc- incredible academic school. And so that was, uh, that was a turning point. Got it. And then you do, you do win state championship though. Is that correct? Yeah, that was fall. You know, that was the fall of junior year in the spring. Um, for the, the, the baseball team, we had an incredible crew. We, um, we were undefeated in sophomore year. Um, and I was one of the top pitchers in the team and we actually, we, so they pair up the playoffs into, uh, 16 teams make the playoffs. We were the number one seed. We were undefeated and we lost to the 16 seed in the first Uh. round of my sophomore (laughs) year. 
Um, and so we were coming back for revenge the following year. Yeah. Um, and we had no, we had no case season. We, we lost a couple people that graduated. We had one person that had an injury. And so that moved me into the number one starting pitcher role, which is cool. Chris so I got, I got, to, I got to be the ace, okay. uh, for that year. And, and we, we moved into the tournament as the eight seed, which is a tough seed to come out and win because if you win the first game, you're playing the number one seed. Um, and, uh, so we, we won the, we won the first game pretty easily. We had the second game, um, which I was, which I was pitching in and we were, it was, uh, we were up by one in the last inning and there was a rain delay that went so long that they stopped the game. We had to go back the next day and play it to get Uh. two, two outs to win. Um, and it was, uh, you know, it was, we pulled it out. Um, and then we ended up making it to the championship, which I was uh, lucky enough to pitch and have the opportunity to pitch there. And, uh, and I forget what the stadium's called, but it's in Manchester, New Hampshire, pretty big, pretty big league stadium, had a lot of people there. And, and we ended up, uh, winning the state championship, which was a really cool, uh, really cool experience to celebrate with everyone. That's great, man. Yeah. When you look back, like what have, what have that experience do you take with you? You know, are there things that you look back on and, you know, when you look back at like those memories, was there anything like during that stretch that you, you know, specifically remember, or you, you know, kind of reflect on from time to time? Yeah, I would say, um, sports generally, I think breeds work ethic and leadership and other things that I use a lot. Um, but I think that one of the big things during that, the story that I just told is just having a little bit of a chip on your shoulder. You know what I mean? Like, um, losing that, like sort of being people not uh, thinking that you're going to be able to do it, coming in in the eight seed, being able to win it. And I think that I think for a lot of people that are listening to this show, and I know that I experience it all the time, I still experience it today that I got a chip on my shoulder because a lot of people, I think, kind of look down on you or you know, you're trying to do something cool and interesting. And so um, that's something that I've carried with me for since then. Yeah. How do you how do you make the chip work for you? You know, we, we can we'll go into kind of deeper on some of these other areas, but I think this is a, a good, a good talking point. You know, I think the chip for some people can go too far. The right? wrong way. Yeah. And, and what do you, what do you, how have you kind of learned to cha- channel that? Right. So you kind of start to learn this early on this idea of like, Hey, this, this can help to push me. How do you channel, how do you channel that today? Or how do you know, how do you think about those moments to where you make it productive versus, you know, again, mm-hmm. it can go kind of negative. Um, I think it's, uh, I'm not sure that I know how to explain it. I think that a lot of it happens just like, like internally, like I, I believe what I'm capable of and other people don't see that. And it's just like it, it, for, for, for me, it's just about, I think being more like internal caring about what you care about, not what other people, um, think or say about you. And then there's a little trick that I use. Sometimes there's a lot of people that, um, have, in one way or another said, Hey, you know, this is never going to work or you're not going to, your company's never going to make it or your ideas are dumb or whatever. And then when I'm going through a little bit of a uh, time where I'm struggling or want to give up, I just kind of recall that, recall that statement and it gets me moving again. And so <laughs> I keep the, keep those things in my back pocket for when I need them. Yeah, I, I think that's a good, I, I think that's a, that's, I think that's a healthy way to think about it. At least, I mean, I'm not a <laughs> psychologist here, but I think it is, right? It's like Taylor Swift's got this line, like, what's it like? Uh, she like keeps track of where the hatchets are, right? Like the, mm-hmm. the knives in the back. And it's like, you, you kind of use those motivations. We'll play a little line from T-Swift to, to make sure that we get it there. So, all right. So driven guy, come back and win it, graduate, you go to Worcester, did I say yeah. By the way, and and um, 
nailed it. Uh, Worcester Polytech, known in New England as WPI, very good school. Uh, most people outside of New England don't know about it. It's an engineering school. One of the things that I didn't mention growing up is that I was just like really good at math and science, right? And so like, and when you're going through school, and I, I think a lot of people think back, like when you're in high school, you don't know what you're going to do professionally, right? And so people no. are like, people are like, hey, you're good at math and science. Maybe you should do engineering, right? And so that's, and then I look, and then at that time, starting salary for engineers and the disciplines that I was looking for were some of the top starting salaries out of any role. And so with my naive sort of like look into it, um, I decided on engineering and I got lucky because I probably wouldn't have been able to get into WPI purely on academics. And so I was, you know, through a, through baseball and academics was able to get into a, to a reach school for me, which was a great opportunity. And then um, that's sort of when I, turned up the heat on my academics, so to speak. Yeah, well, let's talk about it. So you <laughs> graduate in four years here. Yeah. Concentration in biosensors, bioinstrumentation, with an emphasis in signal processing. Chris, I don't even know what that means. Mm-hmm. Okay, I have like an idea. But but so how do you how do you turn into this, right? And, and how do you balance that too? Like, obviously, I mean, look, being into math and science, but also being, you know, star baseball player, et cetera. I think sometimes... It's probably like a mixing of groups or, you know, I had a conversation with Mark uh, Roberge and he talked about um, sometimes feeling like he kind of hid his intelligence from his friends or like just, you know, it was like, didn't, you know, just wasn't like overtly smart at times Mm -hmm. just, you know, to kind of like fit in. And I, you know, I'm just curious with like, did you have any of that or, you know, for you, is it always pretty kind of integrated? It's interesting when you get to, um, uh, college like WPI because everyone's smart there. Right. Right. And so it's a, it's a little bit different. Like, I don't feel like I needed to hide the intelligence. Um, and then, um, and then about halfway through my, my time there, I had an elbow elbow injury in my pitching arm. And so I kind of like at, at the end of sophomore year, put an end to my college career of baseball, which in hindsight was a, was a gift because it allowed me to, to double major to add electrical computer engineering into the major to focus on academics, to figure out other things that I wanted and to work on some other projects. So um, it was a, it was a blessing in disguise, so to speak. And so to, to talk about the, the degree um, I went into, I went into WPI pre-pharmacy. So I thought I was going to go into do um, be a pharmacist. Oh my God. It like, makes me laugh to think about that now. Oh my God. I love that. I want to see Chris Walker at my local CVS. You know, just and, like, uh, hey. Yeah. And so glad that th- that one didn't work out. And the reason that it didn't work out is because in like one of the first days I was there, they told me that I was going to need to do organic chemistry one, two, three, and four. And I was like, forget this. Let me find something that doesn't have that. And so I, uh, I transitioned and, and what I wanted to do was as a, my time at, at university evolved, like what I wanted to do was design medical devices, Okay. Um, design medical devices, for instance, things that um, one of the projects that we were considering is that would um, read signals out of your spinal um, spinal cord and be able to move prosthetic limbs for people that lost their limbs at like in, in war serving for the country or different things like that. And so um, those were some things we made a device. Uh, I think that is used in some, um, in some airports at customs right now that measures the diameter of your pupil and how that changes over time, which is a surrogate for whether you're telling the truth or not. And so if you see the little webcams 
um, some of the base algorithms I might have written in like 2011, 2012 timeframe. They probably made a lot of improvements since I wrote those. <laughs> um, but that, those were some of the things that we worked on. Um, and maybe we can move to 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 graduating, right? <laughs> so, um, so I, I graduate. I had some options to go and do sort of like uh, what I would call like lab rat work. You know what I mean? Like being a lab, write code, do different things like that. And I got one opportunity to join this company called Halma. They were doing a yeah. um, graduate development program, which is similar. Like I think GE and some of the other yeah, large rotational, companies right? rotational program for, you know, try and accelerate smart people into leadership positions inside of a large holdings company that they owned. And so um, I liked it because I got to try a lot of different things. I got to try engineering, product management operations, and it was just felt like it was more uh, like business focus, which was interesting as I started to recognize that. Um, and so I joined, so I joined that, uh, that company, I'm going through this program. The first one I'm folk, it's an engineering project coming out of college. I wanted one that was like writing code. That was what I thought. And I got over and I started doing it. And within, you know, a couple, a couple of months of being there, they were like wondering where I was. And I was out talking to customers about what they wanted. Um, and so it was weird. Uh, I can clearly articulate it now. I don't know if I, I don't know if I thought about it when I was doing it, but I was so much more focused on how the technology was being applied to solve someone's problem versus actually developing the technology. And so having the core understanding of how to build stuff and, and the requirements and whether or not it's feasible and how you would do those things, I think is a really st strong strength and differentiator of mine. But I was way more focused on going out and figuring out what are those people working on? What problems do they have that they don't even know they have that we might be able to solve? Um, and that was, I think, the first sort of like the first intro to marketing. That's marketing. You know what I mean? It's product management, upstream marketing, but it's marketing. And so that was my first sort of like intro into, into that. Um, and then um, went to the next one. This will move to the California part. So the yeah, the, the program move. Yeah, the program by design across. was to move you move you um, every six to nine months between different subsidiaries of the company working on different projects. And so it's weird. They set me up in a in a situation where you're almost for two years a consultant. So you know you're going to a company, you're so solving a specific problem on a defined timeline, and then you're going somewhere else. Um, and so I moved to California. This the the role. California is amazing, by the way. I was twenty three. My company's paying me to move out to California. I lived on Eighth and Orange in Huntington Beach, a couple blocks from the couple blocks from the bars, and a couple blocks from you know the pier. It was a solid setup. Um, and so the the role there was a was an operations role. There's a high volume manufacturing facility. Um, you know, low cost of goods parts. You know, it's costing us three or four dollars to make stuff and we're selling them in high volumes to oems or large manufacturers and my my the original project they brought me in on was a quality assurance project they thought they had a problem with you know the quality of the stuff because they were getting a certain amount of defects and as sure. i got into the as i got in there within a week i was like one this problem can't be solved like it's, it's just going to happen right now based on how we manufacture but over here we have all of these different parts that we're buying in Los Angeles that we could be buying off offshore or from somewhere else. And if we brought these in and did this and did this, then we could lower our cost of goods by 45% and therefore put that much margin on 45% gross margin impact on a high volume manufacturing business was huge. Um, and so, and then I kept going through the manufacturing line, first starting with supply chain and then looking at all these different things about how we can make it more efficient to build things faster or different things like that. 
um, and did process optimization. And that experience is what I do now for a company's revenue system. It's the exact same thing. Yeah. You're getting a bunch of parts shipped in, aka leads, contacts, different things like that. You're doing stuff to them, sales process, and you're getting a certain amount of things out, customers, and you're getting a certain amount of defects, close lost. And so I just looked, that's just a way that I analyze a revenue system now is built on that core experience in, in, uh, in 2013, which is weird how a lot of those uh, previous experiences sort of line up in the future. Um, yeah, and, I mean, and, and you're, and you're only what, two years out of college, yeah. right? Like one year, like how do you, where does that come, you know, that ability to go in and obviously it's the, it's part of the job, right. As a process improvement engineer. Right. But, but there's also, you know, I'm sure other counterparts that were not, you know, that ambitious, right? Mm-hmm. Like where does, where does that, you know, have you thought about maybe where that, where does that drive for process improvement come from? You know, is it just the problem that you love solving? Is it just like that puzzle that gets you excited every day? Um, I think at that point in my career, it was just something where I had um, a lot of uh, talent and capabilities and didn't exactly know how I was going to be to use them. And I got into into environments where companies had a lot of things that could be solved. And my like it's it's what I've been doing in my entire career, both as an employee and now as a as a consultant or a business owner now is my job is to identify all of the things that could be solved, understand what the ROI or upside of those different things are, help either the company that I work for, or the companies that I'm consulting with, prioritize those, identify the most important things, and then go do them, right? And so that's it was sort of like uh, a training in order to do that. Like um, I had at that point, the reason that I knew all of these, all the details about that we could source these parts through China at 67% less cost and da-da-da-da-da is because it you know, a couple months before that, I had started a uh, a a business in my bedroom as an e-commerce company, and I was sourcing products off of Alibaba in China and importing them and private labeling them and taking, you know, doing photography and videos and social media advertising and different things like that, which is kind of where I built a lot of the core skills that I use today in B two B back in B two C, like glory days of Facebook ads in two thousand twelve, yeah. two thousand thirteen, and so that was a uh, that was a side project too, but I knew about the the way to reduce cost of goods sold is because I had done those different projects already. And all I did was go in and search the parts that they were looking for. And those were available over sure there enough, too. There they were. Yeah. Yeah. Th- I think that that's it. I mean, and, and what, you know, obviously then you, you kind of continue on, you go to the, the product role and I think let's get into, you know, did you keep doing this, this side hustle the whole time? Or was this just a point in your life, the, <clears throat> the marketing and the drop shipping? Yeah, I had um, I I uh, I had two separate businesses: one 2013-14, and another one 15-16. Um, and so that that I was just doing on the on the side, and I was doing it at that point. Like I thought I was going to make some money, but I was just like interested in learning. And the the amount that you can learn as a young person starting a business that has low barriers to entry and low startup costs, just to understand how to run a business, is massive. Right. And so you understand how to build a PL. You understand, you know, supply chain and you have to pay somebody money before you get the part the parts in order to even have an opportunity to sell them. So there's a, like cash flow management and other finance things that I got pretty good at that I used when I was anal- now when I was analyzing analyzing PLs for companies that are 50 million in revenue. I was doing I was doing like $50 at that point. Um and so it was kind of something that I always enjoyed doing because I 
even at that time, I knew that I wasn't going to be an employee forever. I don't know. It was just like, it was very clear to me. I didn't think it would happen as fast as it did, but it was very clear that like, um, from a overall like strategy level on a variety of not functions, not only in marketing, but also in product development and operations and, and finance and how companies were operating. I always just felt like I had a different way of looking at things that I just thought was better. Right. And so I'm sure a lot of, uh, entrepreneurs and, and business owners could resonate with what I just said, which is like, I just had a, had a style of what I wanted to do that was different than how companies that I worked for were being run, which created friction long-term. Sure. Um, yeah. And as you get into like the product, like what, what makes you get into product world? So 2014 to 2016, yeah. you kind of move into these product manager rules. So you've got this, these businesses that you started up You're, mm-hmm. you know, obviously it's, it seems like a lot of it is like, yeah, making money, but also the learning that's exciting for you. Mm-hmm. Um, and then what was it about the product world, right? So you've kind of been this process improvement engineer mm-hmm. and different flavors of it. I think in your, your third rotation, you started to kind of get into it. So what was it about product management that, that got, it was exciting for you? Yeah, it's sort of, um, it's sort of by design based on the program, moving that in. And it was, it was good for me because product management at its core is that you're the CEO of a business unit. Like, um, and so it's not only about developing the roadmap, but it's about being accountable to the PL, the comms plan, working with the sales team and making sure that you have a go to market strategy, figuring out what the comms overall communication strategy is. And so it was like an experience of, of that, like running an $8 million business unit inside of a much larger organization was great experience. The reason that I, I think that I did well there is because of my engineering background. I, and some companies were more R and D heavy than, than marketing, you know what I mean? Like downstream comms focus that the engineering background helps a lot when mainly you're trying to figure out what products are we going to build and how do I give that to engineering in a way that they know how to build it. And so that's sort of like the, is that you understand that the art of possible is that is that where you kind of see your like because I understand yeah. the technical details about how we would get something done right or if we're going to try and build a sensor to measure this are we going to use light are we going to use ultrasound are we going to do this like and I sort of had an idea of what things were feasible and what weren't and you know especially in medical device because of the FDA requirements innovation is slow right and so there's innovation that is happening in B2C that could pl- apply to a medical device straight away and they just can't build it because they have massive R&D and, F- and regulatory cycles so you can see things in the future in medical device that that are easily applied to what's already going on there just like in general B2B like if if you just look at what's happening in B2C it's just only it's just three to seven years ahead of B2B for most industries. And so um, it's really interesting to just take those parallels and move them over. I call it translating, right? Because it's not a direct copy, but it's translating what you're seeing in B2C and figuring out what it means to you in a B2B environment. Um, and so, yeah, I got to develop some products. The, the Those um, companies were not heavy in comms. It was mainly heavy in product development, right. and engineering and different things like that. And then, and then, overall sales readiness, right? Like, so a, a traditional marketer's role um, is product and sales readiness, and then like a little bit of comms. And I think in a most B2B companies, it's sort of how it works, right? And so yeah. that's uh, that was that foray. And then like, I had this base amount of skills, e-com, social, advertising, product, um, operations, um, you know, those types of skills. And then I moved into my first venture funded company. I think it's 2000, you have the date, but I think it was 2016 or 2017. 
um, called Vapotherm, which is cool. Um, it was a medical device company and suited my background really well. Um, it's hard to get into, just like it's hard to get into SaaS, it's hard to break into pharma medical device for the reason that it's a regulated industry. Um, and so a lot of people don't understand the regulations, can break the rules, get the company in a lot of trouble, different things like that. And so because I had the background, it was a nice, uh, a nice way in. Um, at that how, point, how did you decide that, Chris? Though before before we kind of d- jump into it, so you know, one, I, I think just to like call out here, so you're this product manager for some of these businesses. Like, like, give me an idea here for like either SunTech Medical, you know, or Sensor X. Like, what type of revenue are these products doing? Like, just just ballpark. Um, yeah, the the, uh, the SunTech product was probably doing about eight eight million. Um, it was a blood pressure device, um, and then the Sensor X product line was probably doing twelve. Yeah. Um, 12 million. And it was uh, um, a variety of um, optical and mechanical sensors for water quality testing. And you're, and you're, you're, I mean, you're literally like four years out of college at this point. Yeah. Not even like to some extent, how do you, how do you think you got in these positions, man? I mean, if you think about your experience and your career and this like unique set of skills that you have, Mm -hmm. it's very like Liam Neeson, right? It's like, I have a unique set of skills that, uh, you know, (laughs) that, that you can deploy it. You know, when you kind of look back and, and I'm sure like you're sure you're probably one of the youngest people in your in this mm-hmm. like peer group at totally. some of these companies. I don't I don't picture these companies of like people like I mean, you were riding around maybe. I skate, was the youngest person there. Let's just say what it is. Yeah. 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 Uh, you know, what do you think was a catalyst for that? You know, you've talked about some of like your primal motivators and your your mm-hmm. kind of your quantitative and qualitative skills, but but really, what do you think kind of accelerated you so so quickly to get into those types of, of roles where you are really running a business at you know someone else's business mm-hmm. multiple times over at you know 23, 24, 25? Yeah, I think it was uh, general. Uh, one, I think that I had a really amazing opportunity and the company set me up in a way that I could actually utilize my skills, which I'm very grateful for. And then I think that it was um, a, a combination of of curiosity and drive, right? So before I went to the product management thing, when I had not done product management before, I bought seven books on product manager's desk reference, da, 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 which taught me a lot of things. And before I even got in, I hadn't executed, but before I got into that company, I knew more about product management than anyone in that in that business. Yeah. It's not, you know what I mean? And I, and then I would find like, I would find courses. I took courses from Wharton on branding and different things like that. And so I was just like a really curious learner at that time, just trying to, to learn as much as I could going into a role that I hadn't done before. And so I thought that generally, I think just in, in my career, I do the things that other people aren't willing to do. Yeah. And you're doing it before you know that you need this skill. And I think mm-hmm. that that to me is, I think, a theme for a lot of what I see as highly successful people that have careers that go very quickly versus careers that take time is that mm-hmm. you're investing in yourself at, and not relying or thinking it's a company's role to mm-hmm. develop you. This is your life. This is your career. And if you're not preparing today, it's why I think so many people miss out on opportunities when they're in front of them. Totally, because they haven't prepared in order to capitalize on the opportunity once it's there. Yep, exactly. And then mm-hmm. you know, it's it, well, where is the time in the day, and and where where do I find time? Yeah. It's like, well, it's it's a fair point. The key is just if you're doing something that's interesting to you, right? And it sounds like to me, like product, like you know, it wasn't stuff like was interesting. Yeah, I didn't, you know, didn't go out on Friday night when I was living in Cleveland, right? I would, I took Wharton <laughs> classes, I read books, you know what I mean? And so, like, um, I, yeah, I made some 
some pretty clear choice. Again, I was like traveling to different cities every six to nine months. And so I was making friends, I was doing things, but I was also like, had a lot of time to focus on myself. And so that's how I used it. Yeah. So then you come back, you come back East um, for this vapotherm opportunity. And <laughs> and this is where you kind of at least job title. It sounds like, I mean, with these product managers, obviously you're doing, you know, various elements of product marketing and, mm-hmm. and overall marketing. Um, what was it about that opportunity? What was it about? Because I, I have to imagine at least maybe, I mean, you can tell mm-hmm. me if I'm wrong, that for some product people, the thought of going and being a marketing manager would be like, different for them right mm-hmm. or maybe it's like a different type of dna i think again because of the the industry we entered into like it probably has to be more tied together than a traditional mm-hmm. like tech company for example right like what was it about kind of this beginning of this shift you know five years ago where you said you know this marketing manager and, and that component of it versus all the pieces is what gets you excited um so I think that, and it's an interesting observation for people to think about. Um, so it, it was, for me, it was about choosing the right vehicle, the right company, not necessarily the right role. Yeah. Right. And so for the past four or five years, the, my entire career, I had worked in companies that were pumped to grow at 10% year over year, deliver profits to their share, shareholders, did not invest in growth, different things like that. Right. And they were right in that P&L and they, most of them went through a, a combination of direct and distribution, but it was mainly through third-party channel yeah. partners, right? And so what I was looking for at that time was a company that was innovative, that was moving fast, that was growing significantly um, quick, more quickly so that I could leverage my skills and learn that part, right? And so I picked the the company in, in that way. Um, and then like in all the other roles that I've done, when I got into that role, when they hired me as marketing manager, whatever my my entering title was, they they wanted me to do sales enablement, to build conferences, to do conferences, to do webinars, and like and that was the job, right? Mainly sales enablement is what I would call it, right? Like that if you if there's a lot of if you're in a non SaaS um, industry, a majority of marketing managers are sales enablement people. Sure. That's really what it is. And so they hired me for that role. I spent the first three months doing that stuff, which was amazing. I was out with the, I was out in the field with reps. It was field sales reps across the country, visiting hospitals, understanding customers, understanding the influential people in those markets, um, understanding objections, feeling sales conversations, different things like that. And then I looked at the business data based on those learnings. And I was like, there's got to be a better way to do this shit. <laughs> and so, that's really just the way it was. You and can't so, help yourself, Chris. You're like, and I, so, I, I, just took I, the, I can't just sit here and just I just took the, the consultant mindset that we talked about earlier, which is like, go in, understand the business, talk to a bunch of people, analyze data, talk to customers, and then assess what is the biggest opportunity for this company. The biggest opportunity for this company was go out and create demand in the market and more effectively communicate with their customers. It was all driven through the channel. We're in 2017 at this point. Like medical professionals are getting information through people that they trust at other facilities, through influential people that are speaking at conferences, not through the sales rep of in, in a business, right? And so my role was to figure out how to, and we had amazing clinical data about how much better our product was. And so it was just like, how do I just communicate this information to the market? in a way where they're receptive, that they understand it, which makes them more open to having a conversation about using our product. And that was the job there. And so I went on a, 
basically we didn't rewrite it formally, but I basically changed my entire job description, integrated marketing automation with Salesforce, built it from the ground up, started having a content strategy, built a video podcast in 2017, where I flew around the country interviewing top physicians um, in their specific specialty, distributing those videos by email and through LinkedIn and on YouTube, um, running ABM campaigns targeted at literally at back in the day on Facebook, you could target companies, pe- people yeah. that worked at certain companies. And so we were running that ABM jam, campaigns man. to Boston Children's Hospital, Seattle Children, like all of the big, massive hospitals that would be our $500,000 million contracts. Um, started doing doing a lot of those things, seeing how much success happened there. Um, looking at the growth of inbound volume of buyers coming to us to buy, how much faster they actually bought, how much better the win rates were, how we can drive that up by creating better content with more better distribution, how audiences grow both organically and on paid, um, and basically built the scaffolding for the company that we run right now. How did you, I mean, I have to imagine that some of those ideas, I mean, or maybe not, but because it, it, the company is less established, did you have pushback internally when you're like, "Hey, this whole thing, like, we're I'm going to pivot." Yeah. This. Or, like, how did how did you go about that that internal process of there's a better way? Totally. Um, so I was I think in a in a lot of so let me try and get started here. The leadership team at that company had been very successful with a previous medical device company. They sold it for like six hundred and fifty million dollars. In, in the early 2000s, the way they built that company was through a field sales team, which is the way to do it in the 90s. It's the best way to build a company, right? It's just like honest, it's a different. A lot of people, it's still the way it's going. It's down. just, it was the best way to do it at that time. And they were repeating that model a decade later. And it was just, to be frank, less effective at that time. Um, and so the way to, the way for me to start positioning it to executives was to, was to frame up the opportunity here relative to the cost. And so um, our company was focused on growth, looking for um, ways to acquire customers more frequently, help the sales team hit their goals. And I um, you know, suggested that we, at the beginning, it was, I think that we should do a test of Facebook ads. And people laughed at me. <laughs> right. Um, people laughed at me thinking that medical people will never buy things on Facebook. And the thing that they didn't understand is that the medical people use Facebook and Instagram and it's our job to give them content, which helps them understand things, which leads them to consider buying. Right. And so there's a huge difference there. And so they gave me $500 to run a test. I'll remember this. I'll remember this for the rest of my life. Um, I'm running a test Facebook, 2016, 17. And just targeting at that point, you could target companies and you could target respiratory therapists or emergency physicians. The targeting was very good back then before the Cambridge Analytica thing. And I'm sitting there, it was like nine at night, the first day I launched the campaign. And, and we normally have like five or seven people on our website at once. And I'm spending 500, you know, a hundred dollars a day, like not a, not a lot of money. Yeah. And we have 50, a hundred, you know, hundreds of people at times on our website simultaneously through traffic that I'm sourcing at like 15 cents a click of qualified people to understand the clinical trial that just came out that says our product's better than what they're doing today. And I was like, wow. And then we ran that test and four people came to our website after reading those things and said, Hey, I'd love to talk to your sales rep about buying this thing. Three of them became qualified opportunities and two of them bought for 50 K ARR on a $500 test. 
And at that point we started to, we started to move. <laughs> I um, think that that's it. Listen to Chris. I mean, I think so many people, what I see Chris is when they're in roles, they wait, they sit there and wait for somebody to tell them to do something. They want to do something. They create stories of why they shouldn't do it or that somebody will say no. Um, but you had to push, right? Like, yeah, you know, not hard, it was hard. Right? Yeah, it was hard. You know what I mean? Like there was, I think it, throughout my, a lot of my career, I'm not sure this benefits me to say this, but there, there's been a lot of times where I was on the edge of getting fired. You just gotta do, you gotta do that stuff when you believe in something and people you need to, you know what I mean? I know um, what you mean. I've yeah. been fired for that exact, <laughs> because of that exact <laughs> and, reason. And, and so, I, I yeah. Um, and, and so, um, continued to, to build that up, got to see how, you know, how much better a relationship is with reps when you put 50% of their quota in every month, as opposed to going out and flying with them once or twice a year to try and close one deal, how much better the relationships are when you show up to the national sales meeting and they're, you know, pumped because they got president's club because you gave them a $200,000 deal in Q4. Um, and I've just been all about marketing contributing to sourced revenue ever since I saw that you create alignment with sales by helping them hit their goals by giving them deals that they would have never seen or never sourced is the way that I see it and they every time they just know they have trust that you're going to drop in 30 50 70 percent of their quota on a monthly or quarterly basis and that's how you create alignment not by traveling to go to a meeting with them yeah, I, you know, that that's a great call out. I, I talked about this actually today. The difference between what what the de- real what I think the, the real definition of relationship building is, mm-hmm. which is a value, I'm providing an tr- immense amount of value, and the value is something that's to your benefit, not for my benefit of like another friend or mm-hmm. again like oh, Chris is fun to go and have a, a happy hour or a beer with. Um, and so, so but so you went innovator of the year, right? Which is pretty badass. Like, what mm-hmm. was that like for you in 2017? And then you go into Eversound and we can kind of start to get into, you know, kind of current day here. But, you know, what was that like for you, man? I mean, like, not only are you getting the validation from internally and you're seeing mm-hmm. revenue, but you're getting this external validation, like, hey, I'm doing some like interesting things here. Yeah, that was, um, that was a uh, probably, <laughs> I think it's one of the only awards I've won so far. So um, it was a, it was a, it was a cool award in front of, 300, 400 people at the time of the company being recognized with two or three other people through through awards at our um, company meeting where everyone flies out and does that, which was which was great. Um, I thought that I thought that what I had um, what I had done was truly innovative, and so um, I thought the the award was fitting. And to be over time, I continued to try and innovate there, right? Um, and as an innovator, sometimes you sort of get in front of your skis or I'm not sure what the right analogy is here, but you, you, you out innovate what the company's prepared to do in terms of innovation. Um, so, and that, that became a point where, you know, in 2018, why are, why aren't we selling our consumables e-commerce to hospitals? And that's sort of like the direction, you know, why, why wouldn't a medical professional that, you know, closes a deal in a 14 day sales cycle, why wouldn't that person just, you know, check buy out and buy, buy our yeah. device online? Um, and that was where I started to outrun the company in terms of innovation. And when you're an innovator and, and you can't innovate, you get stuck and frustrated. And so 
Um, and the company was pre- uh, preparing for an IPO. And so getting a little bit more corporate and different things like that. And so I decided to move on, but I'm, I'm pumped. That company continues to be very successful and has helped a lot of people during this pandemic, a respiratory advice. And so yeah. I'm uh, really excited for, for all of them that still work there. I love it. I love it. And so fast forward. So you get to Eversound, you're there for a little <laughs> bit, and then mm-hmm. you decide okay, I'm going to do my own thing. Yeah. Um, One quick note on, uh, on the experience at Eversound that I thought was interesting. is just like, I'd been, um, I'd been in like large subsidiaries of publicly traded companies that are growing slow. I'd been in a relatively mature company that was preparing for an IPO that had just finished series E or F. Right. And so, and then I move into a company that just completed a series A and (laughs) I had no idea what I was getting into. Right. And so, um, that's when you start to you start to see your experiences collect and you start to understand like what is really going on right and so when i moved into that company i realized all of the things that i had done at that at the my previous company vapotherm were unique that people didn't know about them that people you know resisted those ideas that um that going out and talking to customers inside of a series A company is a foreign concept to understand how to better position and message your product and develop your ICP and do different things like that. So you get into this, this company as a, as a marketing strategist that drives strategy that's been a product manager in charge of business units and then just runs lead gen and, how, and then looking at the data and how bad it works, right? And then assessing that, oh, it sounds like every company is doing this. And so... Um, you know, that, that wasn't the right, the right stop for me. And so I decided to to move on and start my company mainly because I saw how much of an opportunity it was based on the things that I had built before. Um, and then, and then obviously got started here and happy to, happy to talk through that yeah, too. Now you're, now you're rolling. Okay. So let's get into current day. Let's get into, you start this and it's really, mm-hmm. I mean, like, obviously it's growing and then the pandemic hits too, right. Which, um, doesn't necessarily mean that things you know, slow down. Mm-hmm. Um, what are you, what are you, as you look forward, man, as you think about where the company's at now and you think about where marketing is at now and let's, we can throw sales in the mix too, if mm-hmm. we want to about kind of these, these two different pieces. Um, what are some of the trends you're most excited for? So as you kind of look at your career, right? So you've kind of gone, you've, you've been a GM. Now you're running your own company. You're innovating to your point, like trying to, you know, I, I definitely feel this way too. I remember, you know, pitching sales technology implementations in 2015 to these tech companies and they're like, partners, what would, mm-hmm. you know, and I, I I definitely have felt that multiple times, um, mm-hmm. LinkedIn strategy work, et cetera, where, you know, it's like, this is obviously where the ball is moving. Mm-hmm. And there's times when you're, you know, too fast too, right? And it just takes time, you know, you've got to kind of buy patiently wait for kind of, a mass and you can push it um, mm-hmm. to some extent, but, but what are the trends that you're seeing? Like, what are the things that you think are like right in front of us right now in B2B? Like what are yeah. the things that are exciting for you? And maybe the things that you think most companies just aren't paying enough attention to. Yeah. I want to go back on one thing in my company. And then I want to touch on this because I think it's a great question is that at the early pre pandemic, the first year of me building my company, basically people told me that the way I was building, it was dumb. That, um, people would never, I would never be get people to come and buy stuff from posting content on LinkedIn, that yeah. I need to hire a sales team, that hiring a videographer as my first hire was ridiculous, that like that just in general, that 
you know, because we run a model that's more brand focused and demand focused, that there's a lack of clear attribution based on how companies want to measure it, that that would fail all these different things. And here we are. Right. And so I think the take home there for people is like, if you, if you believe in something, you might see it in a different way that everyone else sees it and you got to go with it now. um, And now we have 30 full-time employees and I think that we're going to be somewhere between 40 and 50 by the end of the year. And so the things that I think that that companies that I think that's interesting for companies right now is the uh, ridiculous spread between companies that are ahead and the ones that are falling behind and how much um, how much of an advantage the companies that are ahead because they have talent and IP and operational infrastructure that is difficult to replicate. You can't just drop that in and have a 30-person marketing team running at high octane that's doing all of the right things, measuring it the right way, getting the right results, and knows what to do next versus the companies that are still doing the same shit they were doing in 2009. And so that's what's most exciting to me right now. Um, And I think that a lot of companies could think about that, right? Like even some of the things that I do as an innovator, like my job right now is my company is to have the infrastructure to deliver on the things that people want to do right now that also work while also understanding what are the next five chess moves that each company should make. And so we experiment both on our own customers and with our own brand on different things. We've done brand collaborations, which I've rebranded influencer marketing to brand collaborations. We've done those. I know how much they work. Um, I've done them for software companies and, and we've gotten feedback on their pipeline and know how much revenue having someone that's influential that talks to your buyer, how much revenue that drives. Yep. Um, we have a podcast that we continue to innovate on. We do events, um, events in a different way, which I'm very excited for Jake. We, we had an event scheduled for April, 2020 that we got to get back on the books. Yeah. Man, um, let's do it. <laughs> so, um, so those things I, I'm pretty excited about, but to me, like it really, there, there's things that are in the future, but at its core, and it's all that I do, is I understand deeply who my exact customer is, and then I communicate with them effectively. Marketing is very simple. And so I think a lot of people miss, they miss on both sides. They don't understand, they don't identify their customer at a specific enough level. They don't understand that person at a deep level. They use buyer personas or have stereotypes or do all these different things. And so therefore they can't, the things that they write or the things that they say to those people don't resonate. And then even they don't even get to them effectively because they're waiting for a conference for somebody to walk by their booth before they could tell them the message because they put it in like a print ad or, you know what I mean? There's just so many, so many places where companies waste money um, in in ineffective communication channels when all that matters is, can you communicate effectively with your customers and prospects? How much of that is attribution <clears throat> when you think about some of these, you know, um, intuitively and with evidence that certain things aren't working and other things are working. Yeah. But attribution, this, this, this obsession, and I, I really think it started with the, the rise of marketing automation platforms. Totally. Right. It was like, you know, late or late 2000s, early 2000s. I remember implementing Marketo in like 2010 at Glassdoor mm-hmm. or something mm-hmm. like that. And that's when I started to see it was this obsession with one-to-one attribution of, of dollar in, do- dollar mm-hmm. do- uh, individual in or do- you know, dollar spent against X to Y. Um, and look, in, you know, in a linear world, you know, my, my take on it, Chris, is in a linear world where things were less complicated 
it was not you know like there weren't all you couldn't you know, it was only google programmatic that's exactly like maybe, only yeah, google maybe and google. programmatic so it's like show someone they click on it and they buy something and you have that it's just no, yeah. it's not you know what i mean especially in b2b look around now like all the third-party platforms on social like b2c companies don't use these models because they're not smart like that's the reason why b2c companies don't use visible or or things like that um because they favor certain they favor certain tactics that are lower funnel and easy to measure and they move away from doing anything that's social b2c companies would never run television or other things like that because of the lack of measurement which is what b2b companies do right now but i think when it comes down to it there's two different components one is that executives grew up in a certain time and had success early in their career and have accepted that those are the right way to do things And so they've accepted that going to 20 trade shows a year and spending $3 million on them is the right way to spend that money. And what I did in 2017, how I got the money to fund the Facebook ads and different things like that is that I measured them. Just went into Salesforce, measured all the trade shows and showed them. I know that we're going to 11 trade shows, but we literally created zero net new opportunities. Zero. Um, I get that you're doing your expansion deals. I get that you're doing net new customers. We don't need a booth to do that. Can I have the $1.6 million we're wasting over here and go do something else with it? And so helping customers see that the things that they've accepted may not be working as well as they did before is one part. And then I think the attribution side mainly is used to facilitate lead gen and transactional marketing behaviors. And so um, it helps companies spend more on Google ads or LinkedIn ads because they have attribution to a contact. They'll never look at how much the customer costs to acquire them, right? A lot of the, it's weird when you look at a lot of the advertising tactics that B2B companies use right now, they're built for e-commerce. And so when somebody gets and converts as a lead, they think that's a sale. It's mm-hmm. not, right? And so they give it a, a dollar value. This lead is worth this much and never look across their 90-day sales cycle to see whether or not that person ever closed. And so it's when you start when, and if you take accountability, like I did early on and said, I want to contribute to our sales team hitting their quota, not just passing them a bunch of contacts to call, then I'm going to have to look at the pipeline and see whether or not it actually closes. Cause that's what their goal is. And I started to do that. And I, and I actually called leads that we did in a lead gen model through content syndication or LinkedIn ads to an ebook or all this dumb shit companies do right now. And I actually called them. I imagine most people listening to this have never done this. Called 10 of the leads. Uh, here's what I heard. Never heard of you. Could never, con- couldn't actually never connect with somebody. I didn't fill out that form. You know, hang up. And I'm like, why would I want to go and scale this up and send a thousand of these people to our, to our sales team? And so I didn't. Um, and so, yeah, I think that partially attribution, partially just not like executives accepted that the old way of doing things is the right way. And they're, they accept those things and they scrutinize new things is the situation we got on our hands right now. Well, uh, yeah. And I, there's a, a slew of reasons why, and, and in sales, you know, kind of my, my domain, it's, it's no different, you know, the same way that we build sales organizations, the way that we interact with customers hasn't really evolved since we'll call 100%. it 100% predictable revenue. And, and what you're seeing is the, is the breakdown of this model. Uh, when, when we're used to a frictionless journey in 99% of things that we do, and instead, and, and, and we're used to the buyer accepting our process and just dealing with it, mm-hmm. um, 
it feels a lot like a travel agent in, in 1995 <laughs> you know, or 1993 when, you know, Expedia started to come mm-hmm. out. Like, you know, this idea of a frictionless journey, the, the, can you imagine if you tried to buy a plane ticket and you had to talk to a human like it to qualify you for the route yeah. or something, you know, like this whole like, concept of the inbound SDR, um, the handoff process, the disaligned incentives mm-hmm. across the sales org. Is gonna it's it's gonna break it again, like you said, like the gap between the people that are holding on to the relationship building, and mm-hmm. I do, and I I use that term in terms of the kind of older school meeting. Yeah. Of, you know, we're buddies and we you know play golf and drink beers. Mm-hmm. Versus, I'm adding value to you and making you smarter and truly being an expert. Mm-hmm. That that's where I'm. Sales is moving to this conveyor project management type role, in my opinion. Yeah. That's going to be much more only human in the loop for value add and value Mm -hmm. is determined by someone who can actually help the customer Mm -hmm. with something, not qualify them. Which is, I think going to be more like a consultant. That's right. Than a, than a traditional, what you would consider a traditional sales rep profile. That's what we're Um, moving to. And yeah, I I noticed the exact same thing in 2017 forward is that as a marketer, if I care about revenue, then I also care about how some, once they submit a demo request, what happens after that? Right, because that part of the process is where you fuck up a lot of stuff. Sorry, I'm, I don't know if we're allowed to no, swear on this show. Shit, <laughs> no, of course, man. Um, well, look. So, so parting thoughts, man. As you think about kind of your arc, what are you personally most excited about? What are you personally excited for in 2021 and beyond? So, what the my objective when building this company was to um, to help companies. And transform how they do marketing, but more importantly, collect a lot of smart, talented people with a business that is cash flow positive that allows me to do a lot of innovation. And so, what I'm most excited about is that later in this year, um, the goal would be to launch our first product into the market. And um, having done a couple of alphas and talked to a couple people, I think that the um, SaaS marketing world really needs what we're we're bringing out and so i'm excited to have that uh to to see that product come to life in the future no i'm excited all right (laughs) that's that's cool man well look we'll make sure we'll see whenever you know whenever this releases we'll we'll send a link to someone i'll let you keep it cryptic for now um but but that's i'm you know i'm i'm i think we're in a very similar boat um that there's there's a lot of opportunity right now if you can just take a step back and look at what's happening you know, and I think that that's it is that so many, we're all in our day to days and especially as executives, but if you really take a step back, these trends aren't, you know, ifs, they're just wins. And when these things happen, not, is this going to happen? You, you know, again, mm-hmm. like think about being a, you know, uh, realtor or like a travel agent or all these other things that was impossible to purchase online and people had to talk to you. Magically, somehow during the pandemic, people close multi-million dollar ERP deals still. Mm-hmm happened without ever meeting someone face to face or being at a conference. Uh, so, you know, I, I think Chris, what, what I've taken away from our conversation is just your, your drive to be at the forefront. And I'm excited to hear about this new product when it launches um, and, and hear more about that as, you know, as, as it gets, gets up and running and I'm happy to, you know, I want to be an alpha. I don't even know what it, it is. I don't know what it is, but I want it. I can just tell you that. But Chris, th- this was a lot of fun, man. And I-, I wanted to say a big thank you to you for taking the time, talking us through this. I think there's a lot of great takeaways for everyone. 
Awesome. Yeah, this was a blast. A little bit different than my normal podcast, which I appreciate. And always great to catch up with you, Jake. All right. Awesome. All right. Thanks, everyone. We will see you next week on the Jake Dunlap Show. I'm out. All right. Thank you so much, everyone, for tuning in to another extremely fun and interesting episode. I thought it was fun and interesting, so I hope you did too, of the Jake Dunlap Show. Uh, Really great just breaking down everything that makes people who they are, the success the trials and errors and i hope that you enjoyed it as much as i did make sure to subscribe on your favorite platform and make sure more than anything to go over to jakedunlap.com that's where you're going to stay up to date on all the latest guests additional details prep notes we're going to be sharing everything on jakedunlap.com so go ahead go over there you can subscribe there as well too and we will see you next week on the jake dunlap show